today is about the fabulous Catherine Ornerod, who is an author as well as an influencer and a journalist, and as we will see shortly, a speaker. She cut her teeth in traditional publishing as an editor in big consumer brands, and then became a consultant before finally setting up a platform, a website called Work, 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 which is all about giving an opportunity to show the um, less photogenic side of uh, work and life. So without any further ado, please welcome me in joining Catherine. Hi. Right, can everyone hear me to start off with? Because yesterday I witted on for about 15 minutes and apparently the microphone wasn't working, which was, you know, <laughs> a bit awkward, so but yeah. At the back, wave to me. us if you can hear can you us. Hear both Thank of you us. very much. Great, awesome. So, Catherine, I have to tell you, I am clearly not a millennial, but I'm very, very pleased that I'm not iGen either. <laughs> Having read this book, I am petrified. I have never read a book in which I found myself saying, no way, and making notes with exclamation points and question marks to such an extent. It was truly, truly shocking. And, and we'll get to all of those things, I hope. But before we do, I just want to gain some sense of who the audience are and what you know. So if I say to you, face tune, do you know what I mean? Raise your hand if you know what face tune is. <clears throat> okay, the rest of you are going to be freaked out by the rest of this hour. I'm telling you that now. <laughs> What about Saraha? Do you know what Saraha is? Okay, again, you're going to be appalled. Do you know what a Ralphie is? A Ralphie? You know what a selfie is? Okay, a Ralphie, I will tell you in a moment. What about backstalking? Backstalking? There's a guy at the back there who knows all of these, and I'm starting to worry about how he lives his life. So let me just quickly explain, and you tell me if I'm doing this right. Facetune is an app that can make you look basically completely different. Yeah, it can reduce the size of your nose, increase the size of your eyes, smooth out all of your pores, make you slimmer and taller and more beautiful. I kind of want that now. <laughs> Saraha is genuinely the most frightening thing I've heard ever. Can you please explain it? So it was basically a program that enabled you to offer anonymous feedback. Um, it was uh, initially created for the workplace, so you could offer anonymous feedback about your colleagues, but was taken up in large numbers by teenagers who would then post the um, anonymous, uh, you know, um, I guess, evaluations that their friends would say about them on Snapchat. So it became a, a really big way of finding validation, but also a deep way of anonymous bullying until it got pretty dark and was taken down. It was taken down eventually. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's morphed, but yeah, I mean, say at, um, a very similar service got taken down. Mm -hmm. Now it's, it's um, Sahara has a whole new, um, what's it called, uh, uh, management and... Okay, and a new ethos one. Hopes. New ethos, yes. <laughs> a Ralphie, I think... Okay, I'm going to tell you what a Ralphie is. A Ralphie is a relationship selfie, <laughs> right? So you know those couple, hashtag couple goals things? They're the relationship selfie. And again, I'm worried about the guy at the back because he knew what this is. What is backstalking? So backstalking is where you really go deep with your research on someone. I mean, we've all been there, Saturday night, deep scroll. Google stalking. Oh, it isn't good. It's social media stalking. Okay. So I would... This quite often happens amongst my friends will have discussions about when they've got caught in a backstalk moment. And it's normally that they've met someone on a dating app and they wanted to find out more about them. 
and then three or four hours later they know where their parents went to university and they know probably down to the date that they broke up with the last girlfriend and then they have to go on the date and pretend they didn't know any of that. So you're like, oh, you're from X, you know everything, you know, so it's, um, it's quite a strange thing but uh, I guess if someone likes one of your pictures, maybe you're interested in them, they like a picture from six weeks plus ago, you would probably think, okay, they're doing a bit of a backstory. It would be like the most embarrassing thing if your finger slipped and you liked, you know, something, a four-year-old picture of a... (laughs) You'd be like, who is that? (laughs) I'm going to try and not use the word tragic as often as I want to do in this conversation. Okay, so the book says why social media is ruining your life. But there's a huge focus on women in there. Yeah. Why? So social media is actually a gendered experience. Obviously, the pressures apply to both men and women, but females are more present on every single social media platform. And the ways that we internalize the messages are just different. Um, again, you know, it's huge generalizations, but the way a woman's brain is wired is generally more social, thus social media has had an impact in a different way. From most of the research, in the main you'll find that men often use social media for entertainment, news, information, whereas women are much more pulled into the connection side of things. Obviously big generalizations and, you know, um, there are so many, you know, examples where you could say each different gender, but on a, on a larger scale, that's why. Okay. And you talk about the perfectionism of contemporary feminism. And, and we, we were talking by email in, in advance, and Catherine just kind of threw that phrase out there. And I have to say, I don't know what that means. Uh, I mean, you know, we're held to very high standards across everything in social media. And I think that's the way we look and the way we react to things and the way we mother and the way we dress. and. Equally, our opinions are held to really high standards, and I think if you look at the way that we are tearing each other down for perceived mistakes in, or perceived shortcomings in our principles, I think you can see how perfectionism goes so much further than, you know, Facetune or, uh, you know, the people that you hang out with or the dress that you're wearing. It goes, it drills really deep into your soul and your principles and who you are. And I think it, as a, contemporary feminism is a really good example of how you know new wave feminists are, are tearing someone like Margaret Atwood down, mm-hmm. who you know was the writer of The Handmaid's Tale, which really is the seminal feminist trope now for our, our time. Obviously, because of Netflix and Hulu, um, and but you know, very prescient as <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, of course, clearly very prescient. But the idea that a woman like Margaret Atwood is being criticised for not being feminist enough, um, you know, I think. We just need to be kinder to each other on lots of levels. So I'm, I'm not on Instagram. Right. I mean, we're on Instagram as a company, but I, I, I set up an account, opened it, and within 10 minutes felt so bad about myself that I just closed it down again. Am I crazy or is this happening to other people or am I just particularly sensitive to not having the perfect life? I mean, look, we all have different triggers. <laughs> you know, Fair. this is the thing. There isn't one answer to that question, Dawn. But, um, you know, I think that a lot of us are experiencing um, mental health issues and changes in expectations of life because of social media. And a lot of us believe it's we're the only ones that are going through this. And it's not just us. It is such a generalized um, 
issue, you know, it's, it's a mainstream issue. Most people, if they use social media too much, will feel worse about themselves. In fact, there are so many studies now on the Harvard Business Review um, last year put together a, a really broad overarching collection of all the different studies that are out there and then um, themselves took through two waves of um, primary research and they basically conclusively proved the more you use Facebook, the worse you feel about yourself. Mm-hmm. So it isn't just hyperbole, it's, it's, you know. And there's something to do with the way you use it as well, though, active versus passive. Yeah, so there's been a, a delineation between the two, and in some ways it's enabled the social media platforms to say, well, if you use it in the right way, it's mm-hmm. fine, but if you use it in the wrong way, it's going to give you mental health issues. The problem is most of us use it in the long, long way, <laughs> you know. That's what we're seeing, and we see this passive media, um, social media use, which is... You know, the lurking, the stalking, the creeping. It's almost like you're consuming other people's lives and their communication rather than communicating. So if you want to do it more positively, active social media use is where you create meaningful connections with people, you post your own content, you're having uh, interesting conversations, you use it as a platform to uplift others in your life and, you know... Um, praise them when great things have happened to them and support them when not so great things have happened. In those ways, obviously, there are amazing positive uses of social media. The problem is the vast majority of us don't use it that way, or at least to a certain extent, a certain proportion of our use don't use it that way. How many people in the room are on Facebook? Insta? Twitter? Yeah. Anybody on nothing at all? That would be a weird decision to come to this event, actually, if they were into <laughs> well, it. Well, maybe it was for vindication. <laughs> so I, I'm, on, I'm on Twitter here, and Dubai, I, I always say to people, Dubai Twitter is lovely. Very few of us are, are hidden, we're, and it's a very small world, and we know each other in real life. And I find it works just like that, that it is about helping each other and lifting each other up. Does that make a difference when, when people are, are forced, not forced, but when people show their real, their real picture when they oh, show their real... Oh, for sure. Content. And I think in an expat community, it, it, social media is a completely different context okay. because, um, you know, you're building your position and identity within a society of these people and it's limited, yeah. you know. If, if you get involved in some or embroiled in some really aggressive online scenario, you might walk down the street and see, well, drive down the street and see yeah. someone or arrive to a restaurant and yeah. see someone or they might be at a dinner party. Whereas the, the, the majority of people, I suppose, especially living in big cities, you can be entirely anonymous, you know. Yeah. And that really is, I suppose, with Sahara, um, Sahara is one of the reasons... Um, that there's a problem. Anonymity is, you know, is really the scourge of the internet. So, what, what, what struck me when reading the book was using social media seems to almost be like a full-time job for teenagers. There was a statistic that said teenage girls spend 84 minutes a week on selfies. Can that be right? I mean, I think it's only an hour and 25 minutes. I mean, it's not that, that not, long. Does that not seem like a huge amount of time to spend on taking pictures of yourself? And the, another thing in your book was newborn babies, their picture tends to be shared on, on a social media platform within an hour. Yeah. An hour. The majority, yeah. It's, I mean, 
I, I, there is an element to that since now I've recently been through it. So you want to tell everyone things went all right. Okay. You know, like, <laughs> it's, it's a, a very easy way to say we're all okay. <laughs> yeah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> but obviously as well, it's to, you know, say, Ooh, look at my pretty baby. It, well, quite, you know. And people Although they don't look so pretty at the beginning. No, they wait a few days. Right. <laughs> Well, maybe you facetune. <laughs> well, you know, actually, facetuning children is a really big thing. No, in it is parts not. Of Asia, yeah. Facetuning children. Yeah. But what does that do to you as a kid when you look at a picture that your parents have posted and it doesn't look like you? Like, what message is that saying? You're not. You're not good. Enough. All I'm going to say is, if I go out with a group of girlfriends and there's a group picture of us and I see that she's facetuned herself and not the rest of us. <laughs> Wow. You know, I, it's very difficult. Where do you draw the line here? Wow. That's, that's face tuning politics, it's, you know. That's extraordinary. <laughs> Another extraordinary thing. You said that people are, are paying other human beings to live tweet their weddings and their births. Yeah. I mean, this, this whole idea of social media concierge is growing more and more, and lots of, um, the, you know, our software platforms are investing. Um, millions of dollars in trying to use AI to do the same job, basically. So at some point, we will all have a social media concierge service who can reply to all of our direct messages, comment on our friends' pictures when we don't have the time to do so, and yeah, have the opportunity. then what's the point? <sighs> it's I mean, really difficult, it's isn't social, it? It's social, right? It, so it, you're it, just it, taking it, the social out of social media. I mean, look, I, there, there may be family members who from time to time call me and I put the phone down and get on with the rest of my day and let them, you know, go on with well, it. Yeah, with Ron on. and then I go back and I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, I think, the equivalent of that. Okay. It's making people think that you're in the, their lives but maybe you don't feel that you've got the, the headspace or time to engage with them. It isn't great, obviously, and it isn't um, what you would hope from anyone, the thought that maybe someone was sending me messages that were actually generated, you know, by a robot instead of them, is actually quite hurtful. Yeah. But this is where we are, so. <laughs> I've just remembered, some guy followed me on Twitter. I, this is a couple of years back, I followed him back. And then he sent me a message that had, he'd made a deliberate mistake. He said it was Sunday rather than Monday or something like that. And he'd made a deliberate typo. And I know he did it because the girl who was sitting next to me had just had exactly the same conversation with him. That's just rude, though, right? Because that's that's pretending to be somebody who you're not. That's I know. Well, but, you know, uh, I would say that manners <laughs> in the social media age uh, are, are in the decline, and certainly the depths of relationships that you know we're all building on social media are very different from. What's ever existed before, I have a whole um, section in the book where I talk about relationships. And traditionally, it's been seen that you could have 150 ties yeah. um, of people that you knew well to an extent. That's Dunbar's rule. It's a well-known anthropological um, principle and has been tracked back all the way to the times that we were apes, basically. Um, and, you know, now... Many of us have stretched across 10 times that amount. I mean, I have over 50,000 people that follow me and I speak, you know, I probably answer about 100 messages a day across both of my um, accounts. And what does that mean for my real-life relationships? You know, that's a lot of time yeah. that's taken away from that. And, and energy. It's energy and thought and consideration. And, of course, 
some of the messages are amazing and meaningful and have a big impact on my day and I hope that mine back to other people do as well and you know that's great but a lot of them don't and it's the development of these weak ties at the expense of the deep ties that I think is really worrying about the social media age. So you talk about this quite a lot in the book about men the, the implications for our mental health. Yeah. But there's also implications for our physical health. Can you talk yeah, a bit more about that? Of course. I mean, sleep, I guess, is the number one thing there. And, um, you know, social media has been proven to be detrimental to both our quantity and quality of sleep. Because we've just seen the latest thing that Trump has done. And, well, right. You know, I mean, you, the thing is, when you go onto your phone or to a social media platform, you cannot predict what you're going to be fed by your feed, right? You don't know what's coming. That's part and part of it. It's almost the excitement. What's yeah. it going to be? That adrenaline. Exactly. And you cannot decide if you're going to see a post from a friend that really uplifts you and makes you think, oh, I'm so pleased for her. This is fantastic. Or you're going to see a picture from five of your friends who went out for dinner without you. You know, you can't choose. Mm -hmm. So I think in that instance, is that what you want to be looking at before you go to bed? Or let's be honest, in the middle of the night, because more than 50% of millennials sleep with their phone in their bed, either under their pillow or within a hand's reach. So, you know, it's people getting up to go to the loo at 3 a.m., coming back into bed, checking on their notifications and looking at their phone. Who knows what you're going to see? I do that. I mean, lots of people do that. <laughs> I'm going to stop doing that. You know, and I think I always say, number one piece of advice people always say to me, if there's one thing you could do for your social media habits, it's buy an alarm clock. You know, we all used to wake up for work on time before there were phones. Because it, this is the number one, you know, um, excuse that people yeah, say to me. I, I need my alarm. I have to have it in the room. And actually, it's the... the, the Psychologists have found that we're most susceptible to messages just before we go to bed and when we wake up. And, you know, I think we could probably all experience this. If you see something at 11.30 in the daytime or 2.30 when you're at work, you see it on Instagram and you might be, I don't know, spiked by it, but you're not going to obsess about Maybe. it. You see it at 11pm on your own, in bed, in the dark, it's suddenly everything. Yeah. It's all-encompassing. And it's such a different context. So phones and bedrooms are a big no-no. But you use the word excuse, and I think it's an interesting one because, and again, this, this freaked me out. Um, there was a, uh, an experiment where people were left on their own for, was it 15 minutes? Yeah, 15 minutes. Can you tell everybody what happened? So they were left on their own for 15 minutes. There was a room, and basically they had nothing, no stimulus whatsoever. But there's a button, right? I'm just trying to remember. There was a button that they could press that would give them an electric shock. They had all tried it to feel what it felt like. Before they yes, were And the majority of them said they would pay money to never feel that again. The vast majority of men and a, a good majority of women all shocked themselves because they got so bored with their own company that anything, even physical pain, was better than sitting in their own thoughts. One person shot themselves over 150 times in 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's how often are you bored these days? How often do you just sit with nothing in your hand, with only your thoughts as your company? We don't have that downtime anymore. And it's almost felt like it almost feels that it's socially awkward mm -hmm. to be in a public environment without something in your hand, without your phone. It's like people are looking at you, like, what are they doing? And, you know, the idea of daydreaming or, oh, my God, growing up, can you remember, like, 
the boredom of long hot summers. I just remember it so much, and I would say to my mum, I'm bored, and she'd say, only boring people are bored. Go, you know, <laughs> go and make your own fun, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, and of course we did make our own fun, and it was the, the, one of the biggest things is that we're so deeply overstimulated now, and our brains have turned very goldfish-like into, uh, you know, something that only works when we're multitasking, when we've got these multiple screens on. Um, and there's a really good section in the uh, um, book where I describe what I used to be like in an office. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it, this inability to focus on a single task is really having a massive, massive impact on our ability to be productive and actually the global economy, yeah. you know, on a deeper level. Um, you know, they, they, uh, there's psychologists discuss these two different types of focus. One is spotlight focus, which is very productive and manages to get things done. And the other is floodlight focus, where you, you spread your attention over multiple tasks at once. The problem is our brains are really, really bad at multitasking. It isn't what they're geared up to do. It takes, like, 27 minutes or something to get back from one task to the other. Yeah, yeah? exactly. So you're far, far more productive if you do one task, move on to the next task, on to the other. But, you know, we all know we're looking at WhatsApp group, we're on Facebook, we're, we've got pop-ups here, we've got one screen, we've got two screen, oh, the phone rings, you pick that up, you know. It's this constant jumping around all day long. And I've felt that frustration that, God, I never seem to be able to get anything done. And by the end of the day, sure, I might have ticked off my tick list, but I feel so drained, completely hollowed out by the day where, what have I really done? Okay, maybe I've written 47 WhatsApp messages, maybe I've bought a pair of shoes from Zara that I saw on Facebook, maybe I've told a girlfriend that she shouldn't buy the same pair of shoes because I'm getting them, <laughs> you know, like maybe you've responded to work emails and Slack and all of this, and the amount of pure energy that we're wasting, you know, it's, it's not just minutes of our day, it's hours and weeks and years of our life, you know, when you look at the facts, like the, the average amount of time that each individual spends on social media is an hour and 58 minutes every day, which is a month a year, you know, mm. it, it's, it's a month. <laughs> wow. And I would say that, you know, I've had times where I have looked at it for more than an hour and 58 minutes a day, so... Does WhatsApp count as social media? Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> That's bad. Um, okay, let me ask the audience a question. We're at the Festival of Literature, so you're all readers, right? Since social media, have you found it harder to read books? If you say yes, raise your hands. Right, so that's down to that ability to focus again, right? That energy. It is, and you know, this, the thing is, our brains are wired to um, prioritize novelty. We love the new. It's part of the human condition. That dopamine hit. It is, you get that dopamine hit. There's something new, something interesting. And you know, you can drill that down to why we are the way we are about fashion or whatever, you know. We are always in the search. We're neophytes. It's, it's part of what we, our, our DNA. And social media absolutely um, hones in on this. And um, keeps rewarding us with the new, with the new, with the new, with the new, until we become addicted. And, you know, addiction, things like this, these terms are bandied around. You know, if you decide one day that you don't want to do it as much as you're doing, but then you find you can't stop yourself, that's then you difficult. are addicted. Like, end of. And that's, you know, some people believe that you can't have the same level of addiction to behavioral things. I personally think it's, it's the same as any type of drug that gives you a positive feeling that you feel that you can't escape from. 
Um, and, you know, when we talk about screen time, I've got a girlfriend that has an average of over 11 hours a day. Does she have a, a job? She's a really, really big Instagrammer. But Does she have a job? I, I mean, her social media is her job, okay. but irregardless, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's not, that's not good. It's not normal. No, it's, um, not it's, normal. it's not good for her mental health. She's constantly, constantly being called into comparing herself to other people and... You know, well, you, that's what I want to talk to you about next. Exactly. You, you say, wasting energy. You know, just reduce it by half. Let's see if we can do that. She can't do it. It's, as far as I can see, it's an addiction. Talking about wasting energy. So she's comparing herself to other people, but what she's comparing herself to isn't real. So you talk, in many cases, yeah. right? So you talk about people going into hotel lobbies just to take pictures. Yeah. And any of you have ever been to Burj Al Arab or Emirates Palace, right? We've seen those people. I get... I kind of get that. When you said that people take pictures of themselves in IKEA yeah, to put on dating thing. apps yeah, for Tinder, well, you have to remember in London, people live in very small flat shares. So if they want to project that maybe you know on social media dating sites that maybe they've got a bit more of a sick pad, I mean, IKEA is a very open place to do it. You know, you just have to put your hand in front of the label that says Billy, really, don't you? <laughs> finally meet these people in real life is it not a disappointment i mean i suppose it depends how deep they are looking to go with the relationship okay. let's just say okay, okay. you know I, I, I understand. If, if in a transactional culture you know the material wealth that you have or at least can project to have Isn't can it? have dramatic difference on your attractiveness as a partner but mm -hmm. that is the reality of life Okay, so that, that brings us on really nicely to what I want to talk about next. Um, in the meat world, as I've heard the real world being described recently, which, again, gross. So social world, social media world, and then the meat world, because, you know, we're meat. A third of divorce cases cite Facebook? Yeah. I mean, really be careful what you tweet, people. I mean, <laughs> yeah, what do they say? If you're going to cheat, don't tweet. Um, it's... Yeah, it's unbelievable, really. And look, social media has made us, has turned us into a surveillance culture. We know so much information about our partners that we didn't know before. Sometimes I think that I could literally be, you know, hired in for counter espionage. The level of information <laughs> that I have the ability to to pull together on people, and you know, people find out. And these but that's not kids. Kids aren't on Facebook. Right? That's, that's Some kids us. are on Facebook, but you know, Facebook is very much the millennial plus generation. Yeah. So that's probably why it's been cited in, in the, divorce in the cases. Case. Before we know it, they'll be moving on to Instagram and Snapchat. Um, you know, we just need to wait for all these people to get married and divorced, really. <laughs> Yay, nice. Not at all for me. Spreading joy. <laughs> so I said at the beginning, I was really glad that I'm not iGen. So that's the generation that has grown up just with the internet. You did not have a time before yeah, the internet. zero context. Zero context. And one of the reasons that I'm grateful for that is that I've been able to reinvent myself. Um, you know, there, there aren't embarrassing pictures of me outside of my parents' home. Yeah, that's it's one of the things that I personally found most interesting writing this book and this concept of um, a permanent identity and how difficult it is to experiment as a teenager because you know, all your past indiscretions, style-wise, or who, who you were, and what you stood for. What you believed uh, in. Yeah, are all there, you know. And So we've got those guys in, in Alabama who 
um, were chanting Nazi slogans the other day in, in high school. That's it now. That's forever. Yeah, for the rest of their it. life. Exactly. And, you know, I've had conversations, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with young people who have made mistakes on the internet before they were 18. Um, you know, most social media sites say as a 13 year old you can go on there. Um, but you're still a child, and what you say and what you do, it's part, you know, you make mistakes, you Good. get things wrong, you know, it, it, it should be a time where you're free to make those mistakes and learn from them. Sadly, two people I know have um, got to the final round of job interviews and tweets were found that they wrote before they were 18 and then they haven't got the job. Um, you know, someone else that I know was in a really highly publicized television competition and, you know, they, they found out that he'd said and done something and he got evicted from it even though these these tweets happened before he was 18. And of course, you know, we, we want to teach our children that, you know, if you're putting offensive words out there that it's, you know, terrible, but you they need to be taught that with the understanding that... The children. Their children, exactly. And there's a, a big conversation about whether children should have the option to wipe everything they've yeah, ever the done right before to be they were 18. Yeah. yeah, the right to be forgotten. But how you would ever do it, I don't know. Because in one of the cases that I know, there was someone from their school that had screen grabbed something that they'd written and then it was sent to the press. Wow. So, you know, things on the internet are forever. pen, you know, yeah. they're, they're there. And that's why there needs to be so much coaching and, um, you know, teaching within schools about the, the magnitude of what you do and say and how you behave on the internet in all digital forms. And it's just not there yet. Yeah. I, want, I want to talk a little bit more about the workplace. So one of the things you talk about is because people are curating their lives mm -hmm. and they are making it look effortless. Yeah. You know, everybody is having the perfect holiday with the perfect partner, doing the perfect wealthy, with the <laughs> perfect children. Then you have the the sense that that millennials and and the, and the kids younger than them, because millennials, you know, the eldest millennials are thirty four now. So yeah, you know, I'm, I'm actually I'm thirty five. I'm okay. as old as a millennial gets. Okay, there you go. <laughs> are coming into the workplace and they are bewildered by the amount of boring, repetitive, nonsensical, yeah. pointless, bureaucratic yeah. nonsense that they have to do. Yeah, I mean, I've used my career as an example. Um, social media was going when I started work, but it wasn't to the extent that it is now. But, you know, I worked on a fashion magazine and I got to do loads of glamorous things. But most of the time I sat in a, a closet that was probably the size of this and I booked in clothes and returned clothes. Ooh, the glamour. Yep, I was basically paid also to be a bodyguard for those clothes, so part of my job was to be security. Which, you know, is, is probably not what people thought of as someone that worked on a fashion magazine, but, you know, I, I did once go on holiday and someone stole 12 pairs of Louboutin, so all I'm going <laughs> to say is, I was obviously very effective, <laughs> you know, but, it, you know, did people see those... 30,000, 40,000 pink sheets of returns that I wrote to send back products to her. No, of course they didn't. They saw pictures of me with a glass of champagne out at celebrity parties doing X, Y, and Z. So if someone behind me came up and thought, I want that job, and then they arrived and realized that they were actually going to be a security guard for shoes, it'd be a bit of a shock, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you wow. know? And that, that 
kind of followed me all the way through my career, to be honest. So we all have in our jobs things that aren't glamorous and, you know, are just hard graft and sometimes feel menial. And I tell you, I'm starting to work for myself. It's almost like you go backwards because you have to do the dirty everything. work as well as everything, you know. And there are days where I'm doing things and I'm like, man, I should have stayed in a supermarket at 16 because I was earning more for this type of work. <laughs> and at least I got to chat to my mates. Like, I'm here in like, oh, you know, the hours that you put in, all of that stuff. And also the little money that sometimes you are making, people don't know, you know, at the beginning of my career, my... I worked for two years for just expenses, so that meant for two years I earned three thousand pounds for a year's work, wow. and every day I was working nine till nine. It was really hard. I had to take out loans and work at the weekend, and you know, no one saw me on the shop floor in accessorise every day in the <laughs> M1 centre in you know Angel. No one saw me dressed up as like you know some circus girl thing at the weekend doing promotional work, like with costumes that I had to wear. I'm going to have to say tragic again. I mean, it was, it was tragic, <laughs> but you know, I did everything to continue investing in this career, which now obviously I'm very oh, happy yes. about, but all for a long time, all I was doing was sharing the rewards instead of um, sharing the graft and work that had gone into that. And that so skews the perception of what it's going to be like when you enter the workplace because it's really hard work and people don't necessarily treat you as if you're anything special and I think it's a shock for most people to be honest on, on, at every level you know if you look at social media it's like how why is my Monday morning commute or Sunday morning commute Very it's so difficult you know um, why am I going through these financial issues? Why is my relationship so terrible? We begin to feel we are the only ones that suffer. Because everybody else's life is Exactly. Perfect. Whereas suffering, sadly, is universal. Like, everyone has parents, everyone has families and friends, and things go wrong, and sickness, and, you know, it, it, struggle is part of everyone's life, as position. is failure. It, it really is. So the idea that, you know, there's one type of life that these people on social media are living and then there's your type of life and if somehow you could accrue some more followers or earn a bit more money you might have access to this type of life where there isn't any darkness that is a big problem that's the lie we're being sold it's the lie we're being sold i'm going to come to the audience in a couple of minutes to ask for questions um so start thinking them up right now we've got kushi and sarah who are going to kushi and sarah wave at me where are my kushi and sarah people John is going to go and find them now. Um, they're going to go running around with mics to you. So start thinking about your questions now. But before we get to that, we've been really down on social media. <laughs> yeah. right? And to be fair, it is called why it's ruining your life. It is. But the, the, the point is why. Yes. I think that's the key. Like, there are, there are lots of ways that social media... there's a 
First of all, really quickly, I don't think it's in the book, but do you think social media has kind of released our inner narcissist? I feel like loads of people might have seemed normal, then suddenly you see them on social media and they just talk on their phone all day about mundane things, about like, oh my god, yeah, this and that. And it's just that behavior that I only see on Instagram stories or on, yeah. you know, on that social media platform that you, they wouldn't write an essay about, oh, I think I need so much better makeup or whatever. So that's my first question. And the second question is, is there some tips that you have for like, business use of social media. So I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I work for myself. 80% of my business comes from Instagram. Yeah. I work in a very creative industry. So a lot of people who follow on Instagram, they're like, oh, well, can we hide it? So it comes from there. So it's really hard not to compare yourself to what other people are doing. So how would you do that? You're like, oh, reduce your screen time, but then you get all these messages and inquiries and you want to reply, but like it's 11 p.m. and you don't want to, yeah. You know, how do you deal with the why this is ruining your life, but from a business perspective? Yeah. Okay, so on the first one, Sorry, that was very long story. No, first one on narcissism, I do talk about it quite a lot, and pretty much all of the studies say that when you turn the phone on yourself to take a picture, it generally um, is because you feel insecure. So it isn't an expression necessarily of narcissism. It's not, wow, I'm amazing. It's, I don't feel great about myself. I'm looking for validation. The more people post selfies, generally the worse they feel about themselves, the lower their index is on their rating of their own body image and their own beauty um, rating out of 10. So if you see someone that's posting a lot of pictures of themselves, specifically ones of their face, it generally means you should be a bit concerned about them. Instead of looking at them and thinking, well, you love yourself, which is the immediate reaction. Um, it's you know, it's definitely something worth thinking about. Um, and I think that we, we, 
we again should probably be kinder to each other. It's you know you're just like oh my god this girl loves herself and actually maybe she's sitting there thinking please tell me I'm beautiful because I feel terrible about myself. I was really surprised by all of that research as well. So that's the first part of it. From a business perspective, look, this is a question about boundaries or stop. And I think that if you have the tendency to maybe err towards being a little bit of a workaholic, social media can completely ruin <laughs> those boundaries. So when it comes to responding to messages, generally, I think people on, on social media accept that there's either going to be a 12 or 24 hour gap because people do know that you're busy, you're doing other things, you're running a business all on your own. So give yourself that lead time. Don't believe that if you don't get back to them at 11, 15 p.m., they're not going to want your business. You know, they're not expecting you to respond at that time of night. It's only what you're expecting of yourself that's making you do that. Um, and if they are, they're going to be a nightmare clients. Well, quite. <laughs> <laughs> and from the comparison perspective, just remember, that we didn't all start at the same start line. You know, you don't know what's been going on behind the scenes, how much help someone might have, or else maybe something terrible is going on another side of their life and you're sitting there thinking, God, their business is amazing, but their husband's just left them. You know, you have to remember that we all have holistic lives with lots of different things going on. And you just can't judge. We're all on completely different trajectories and journeys. It's really easy to say, very difficult in practice, but you do, you say it to yourself enough, and I think that because of my life experience has gone a certain way and like I had a really, really tricky time around my late 20s and everything felt like it went off the rails. Whereas before that, from the outside, it was like I was winning in every category. Um, it really taught me that lesson. Um, and now I don't look at other people thinking that in general because, you know, who knows what's going on behind closed doors, number one. I faked it, so could they. And who knows what's coming on down the road for them.